0: Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra.
4: Hey guys, just wanted you to know in this episode, we discuss eating disorders, suicidal ideation, suicidal tendencies, depression, and ADHD. So please take care while listening. <laughs> Hey guys, it's Kayla. Candace is not able to join us today, but we are all still so directionally challenged. We thought we would have it all figured out by the time we were in our thirties, but surprise, we don't. And that is okay. We are talking about mental health awareness. It is May and May is Mental Health Awareness Month. So today we have Sarah Faye on. Sarah Faye is the author of a new book, Pathological, The True Story of Six Misdiagnoses. She writes for many publications, including the New York Times, the Atlantic, Time Magazine, and the Paris Review. She's the recipient of the Hope Wood Award for Literature and Grants and Fellowships from Yaddo, the Mellon Foundation, and the McDowell Colony, among others. She's on the faculty at Northwestern University, the founder of Pathological, the Movement. And she's been asking all the uncomfortable yet necessary questions about people being misdiagnosed, and she is so brave and shares her true story about being misdiagnosed six different times. So without further ado, we're going to jump right in to my conversation with the lovely Sarah Faye. And we are here with Sarah Faye. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. Your story is terrifying and fascinating and runs the gamut of emotions. I was thinking about it because we have EKGs for the heart, we have MRIs for the brain, but when it comes to pinpointing our mental health... Things such as depression, anxiety, really important things. The tools are limited. And you so openly share how you were labeled with six mental illnesses in over 30 years. And if you feel comfortable, would you mind starting at the beginning of your story for us? Because I am sure so many of our listeners are eager to hear what you have to say. And we want to hear about how you came to inhabit your diagnosis as well.
3: First of all, thank you so much for having me. And if I don't feel comfortable, I shouldn't have published a book about it. Very
4: true. I just feel like I have to say it.
3: It's so respectful. Someone asked me, you know, can I ask you a personal question? And I thought, "Um, absolutely. Like, just receive my book. It's all in there. But yeah, so I was diagnosed. My first diagnosis came in eighth grade, and I was diagnosed with anorexia. And in my 20s, I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder and major depressive disorder. Then in my 30s, I was diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive disorder, then attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, then ADHD and OCD with anxious and depressive elements. And then finally, in my 40s, I was told that I had bipolar disorder. And one thing I just want to say for listeners just as we get into this. So one way to think about this is mental illness, mental illness is an umbrella. And under that umbrella, umbrella are diagnoses. So that's what we use to try to kind of get at what's under the umbrella. So I, I, you know, mental illness is this thing out here, but diagnoses are something that we've come up with to try to get a handle on mental illness. So just to kind of make that distinction, because In my journey, and I'm sure we'll get into this, I found out a lot about mental health diagnoses that I didn't know that was very disheartening and startling and really, you know, shocking to me. But mental illness is just very, very real. I had it. I struggled for 30 years. And I just think that people with mental illnesses are the strongest people alive. We're treated as weak, but we absolutely are not. So any questioning that's going on, it's not about mental illness. It's just about how useful are the tools that we're using, as you put it with to diagnose.
4: Right. That's such a and I just have to commend you because the book is truly it really is phenomenal. And you go there, you you ask the tough questions, which sometimes I think it's easy to just breeze over some of these really tough questions. And, you know, you discuss you ask if diagnosis is the path to healing. Is it? And and or is it just this self-fulfilling prophecy? And And can you dive into that a little bit for our listeners and explain that? Because I think it's such a fascinating concept that we don't openly discuss very much.
3: Yeah. So when I was, you know, I spent 30 years in the quote unquote mental health system, but in the health system, really five of my six diagnoses came from my GPs. So they came from during annual visits of 15 minutes once a year. So I wasn't really... I think the other thing about my book that's so striking and, and why it's resonating so much with people is that's the experience most of us are having. Mental illness memoirs tend to be very extreme, and they're about someone being, you know, forced involuntary hospitalization and this and that. But really what most of us are going through is suffering, emotional and mental suffering, and looking for an answer and getting a diagnosis and thinking, okay the answer's got to be here. This is where I'm going to find healing. This is where I'm going to find relief. And it makes sense because that's how physical illnesses work. We go to, you know, we feel chest pain. We go to the doctor. We find out we have, you know, AFib or whatever it might be or or something wrong with our heart. And then we get the treatment for it. We've been diagnosed. It makes sense. And then we can sort of order our lives around it, maybe even our identities around it. The problem with mental health diagnoses is we're doing the same thing, but they aren't as accurate and they aren't actually, they don't hold the tools to relief. So let me explain when I talk about a self-fulfilling prophecy. What I didn't know is that there are actually two steps To recovering from a mental health condition or restoring mental health. And the first one is get help. And we all need to get help and get treatment and commit to that treatment. So, for one person, that will be medication. And for another, it will be meditation and and everything in between and all along and whatever that is. So, that's step one. But right now, what we're doing and what I experienced was I froze there. That was it. So, all I got was a diagnosis and some treatment, and there was never any talk of healing and that's step 2. And healing is actually when you we can realize all right this is the system we're in in mental health diagnoses but the diagnosis is only meant for our doctors to use to try to get us the best treatment they're not an identity and i used them as an identity i really became the diagnosis that i had so to give you an example when i was you know in 8th grade i was very, very, my parents were divorcing. I was going to a new high school. I was sad and I was terrified. And I had a stomachache. It felt like there was a black pit inside me and I couldn't eat. I didn't want to eat and I couldn't eat. And I lost a lot of weight. I remember my graduation dress was just like hanging off of me. And my, I went on an eighth grade class trip. I didn't eat for four days. I came back. I couldn't hold down food or water. And my parents rightly took me to our pediatrician. He weighed me. And he looked at my mother and he looked at me and he said, she has anorexia nervosa. I had that never fast. heard that word. That yeah, fast. it was like, and and it was... That was the scariest word. I was like, "What is that? You know it's I mean, a big you're word. Thinking, yeah, I mean, I'm like tiny, you know, and I don't know what that is. And I'm scared because I'm not handling life well, and it's clear to me too. i'm I mean, you know, no one wants to be ill. Like that's not something we voluntarily do. So I know that something is going on. But what happened was in that moment, in that instance, I basically started to connect all of my thoughts, feelings, and behaviors to a diagnosis. And so what I did was I didn't just have anorexia. I became an anorexic. So at that time, I I didn't have the three classic signs uh, or or symptoms of an anorexic. Which you now know. But of course, in eighth grade, you didn't. No. And so I wasn't weighing myself compulsively. I wasn't counting calories. And I didn't think I was fat. But I did become that because someone had told me your pain is anorexia and this is what anorexia means and then I developed it as my identity now that diagnosis helped me get treatment and that's a good thing but we're living right now in a time when mental health diagnoses are on you know an incredible increase and between 2016 and 2020 diagnoses of anxiety and depression among Teens and children ages 3 to 18 have gone up 29 and 27% respectively. That's a huge jump. So we've got young people getting these diagnoses like I did. And my concern is that I didn't have the um, adult maturity or sensibility to say, oh, okay, this is a diagnosis, but it's not my whole identity. It's not everything that I am. It's not me. And I didn't do that. And what happened was then I kept... Thinking whenever something felt wrong or whenever I was in emotional or mental distress, I just assumed, wait, I need a diagnosis. Like there's got to be something wrong and, and it'll be cured by the diagnosis. And so that's what I mean by self-fulfilling prophecy, just that, that then what happened, two things kind of happened, which is that I started to search for diagnoses being the answer to any mental and emotional suffering. And then what I would do is I would get a diagnosis, think, okay, if I can just master this, if I can just know this, if I can just just get at it, I'll get better, but that it does the opposite. I became it and I got worse.
4: How did you then learn to to that you needed that healing part, that second step? Because you know, the truth is there is so much information out there. And I don't know if that's to our I think it's to our benefit, but then it's also so detrimental. I mean, this is just a, a side note. How do, I would love to know how you feel about the amount of information there is out there. It, do you feel like that helped your uh, process or did it hinder? It definitely
3: hindered. I mean, I, I started a nonprofit public awareness campaign called Pathological the Movement. And what that is, is really trying to combat a lot of the misinformation on the internet by giving people four facts so they can better navigate a diagnosis or a diagnosis that that their children or loved one receives. And the reason why I did that was, one, my book is really a memoir, and it's a cautionary tale of what can happen to someone who identifies with a mental health diagnosis very young, over-identifies with it, to that person's detriment, and then grows up and doesn't correct for that, which I think is is in, and I've given people all the information they need to know about diagnoses and, and why they aren't they aren't beneficial in that way. But pathological the movement is exactly that. I believed everything I read on the internet and, and a diagnosis was really just like me letting me loose on the internet like finding every wrong fact. So I believed that what was wrong with me was caused by a chemical imbalance. I had no idea that that was debunked 20 years ago. I didn't find that out until after I was writing my book. I believed that diagnoses were really these scientifically proven, reliable things that you know are like cancer and you should you know really take them on. And they're nothing like that. And then the third thing that we talk about is I was never told that I could heal. So I believed that all mental health diagnoses were chronic. I was told that what I had was chronic. I was told ADHD was chronic, major depression anxiety, all of it, bipolar especially. I was also told when I had bipolar disorder that, or when I was told I had bipolar disorder that I would die 10 years earlier, that I would never have a long-term relationship, that I was likely gonna file for disability, that, you know, I mean, it was just on and on and on. And that's what I mean about a self-fulfilling prophecy in a negative way. It was all the negatives that I took on. Unfortunately, mental health diagnoses don't have positives that we get to. Right. We don't they don't. They're all negative. It's just only like a negative identity that you get. And that's the problem with them. An exception is autism. And and that is just one that I I like to bring up because that's such an exceptional community. And that is one not for everybody, but they are really bolstered by their diagnosis. They're empowered by it. They get funding. They get resources. I mean, they're just an amazing community. So but other than but that has somewhat can have positive connotations. I haven't seen examples of that in the bipolar community, for instance, or, or anywhere else yet. But yeah, so,
4: you know, I j- it's sorry, I'm just processing all of this because I know it I'm is, throwing a lot at you. <laughs> no, but not only that, it's sometimes really hard to hear and hard to acknowledge that this is our healthcare system and this is what it is. And this is what we have to deal with. And I'm sure people listening have either dealt with it themselves or their loved ones have dealt with it. I mean, this is something that doesn't just affect the individual. It affects the families. It I mean, it affects so many of us. So, I mean, I guess, you know, you you talked about how you willingly accepted your diagnosis and how I, that just got me thinking I've never, ever questioned a doctor once they've told me something in my entire life, nor have I, you know, asked any follow up questions, which you also talk about in your book. And you have some surprising questions for us, which I love actionable things that we can take after while we're having these types of conversations, because it feels like it's a part of the solution, right? Like we we know it's a problem. And how can we do our best to kind of make sure that we don't end up in a situation like that, because I would I've put myself in your shoes while reading your book and thought, oh, I would absolutely have been in the same Place. I don't question doctors. They've got the lab coat on. They've they're so professional. I'm like, oh, okay. So you know. And the truth is, it, it is important to ask follow up questions and really try to understand how they came to what decision they're giving us. And the truth is, they're giving us the decision, and we are. I. It's really hard to process in the moment and it's hard to remember to ask questions and how to handle that. And I know you've had a lot of experience in that. So can you take us through this and help us in that capacity?
3: I mean, you bring up so many good good points, and and I didn't question any of my diagnoses. And why would you? What right. I didn't know, and this might, first of all, I totally, anyone who's listening that like just stopped their car and <laughs> wants to get out or turned off, whatever. But I understand. I mean, when I learned a lot of what we're talking about, it was like someone had taken the earth out from under me. I mean, you have to realize I lived for 30 years as seeing myself as someone with a permanent diagnosis, and that I would always have something wrong with me. So to find out, wait a second, this isn't—it's not that this isn't true, but—but but wait, there's some wiggle room in here, or it's not quite what I think it is. I couldn't handle it. I mean, it was very, very. It took a long time for me to come to terms with and to understand. So again, that's why I kind—I of, gave you that picture of mental illness being under an umbrella, and the diagnoses are what we're looking at, not. It's not that the symptoms are false. It's that the diagnoses that we have to work with right now are fallible. They're flawed. Some of them are just plain invented. And any, you know, psychiatrists are well aware of this. I think one thing I'm amazed with or about is since I've been publicizing the book, originally my publicist and my editor and I thought, oh, we're going to get so much pushback from psychiatry. Like, no, not at all. In fact, they've just been amazing. And I've met so many just estimable people that I have so much respect for, like Thomas Insel and Paul Applebaum and you know these really pivotal figures in psychiatry who've really just said, yes, yes, we know there are problems with this and the public deserves to know too.
4: That's the thing. Yeah. Not only does the public deserve to know, the public should know. Yeah. It's really yeah. important that we all should know this. And why aren't we talking about it? Yes. Hey, guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute.
1: underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer flexible budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals get more cool facts about united healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com
4: it's time to get more in 2024 i know for me one of my goals is to feel really strong this year and honestly so far so good
3: we're back. It's like, I just didn't understand how I possibly couldn't know. So two things that really, I think people do or that people do need to know. So one is that there's no, and you, you talked about this, there's no biological marker. When I say that no diagnosis is scientifically valid, there are two exceptions. One's dementia and rare chromosomal disorders is the other one. But there's no biological marker, no blood test, no x-ray, no scan that we can give someone to say, see, here's your depression. This is normal depression on the scan. This is what it looks like. And this is what you have. Do you see you have major depressive disorder? We can't do that. And so that was sort of stunning to me. And I thought, yeah, you're right. I've never gotten a test. I I did speak with someone and she said, yeah, I I I, I was going to a psychiatrist to, this was many years ago. She said, and they thought I had depression and I told my boss I wouldn't be back for the day from work because she said I thought I was going to get all these tests and like you know be under anesthesia and like you know it's nothing like that you're just sitting across and that's what a mental health diagnosis is it is based entirely on your self-reported symptoms and a clinician's opinion based on this book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual the DSM and the diagnoses that are listed in there. So those diagnoses are basically, they are written by members of the American Psychiatric Association primarily, started in 1952. It's evolved since then. We started with 128 diagnoses. We now have 541 different ways to be diagnosed with a mental disorder. So over the past half century or three quarters of a century, it's grown that much. And so this is all just to say, when I thought depression was a thing, like really solid. And if someone said you had it, you had it. But what I learned is that, so first of all, depression is Robert Spitzer, who's one of the main architects of the DSM, what he said to, he was asked why you need five of nine symptoms to qualify for a major diagnosis of major depressive disorder. And he said, well, we just went around the table and four seemed like too few and six seemed like too many like that was how we got the criteria. <laughs> so that just feels ta- way too casual
4: to talk about <laughs> yeah. something that is so
3: life-changing. Especially when we're talking about it in children and teenagers and and anyone going through a life crisis like that's just could be explained by the situation when we're telling them incorrect information, like you're going to have this for the rest of your life, which has never been shown and never been proven. So you talk, you asked about what can we do? I mean, and and I think that, you know, sometimes this can get very disheartening and I don't think it is actually, I think that there's so much hope. It's empowering. It is. And that's what, you know, pathological, the movement is about what my book is about to get people the information they need so they can make more informed choices about their mental health and their loved ones, mental health. But one thing I did not know that's so, so important and so obvious, but I didn't know it, get a second opinion always. Always get a second opinion. The other thing is that's a luxury. And I understand that. I spend a lot of my life without health insurance. So I know what that's like. But if you do see a general practitioner like I did, so you see a GP and or a pediatrician and they give a diagnosis, know that GPs and pediatricians, therapists, they are not trained to diagnose. Psychiatrists are the only ones who are are physicians trained in mental illness at all. So that's, I mean, psychologists, you can have a a great deal of training, but just knowing that a GP has probably about 32 hours of psychiatric training and that's it. Yet they're doing most of the diagnosing. They write 80% of antidepressant prescriptions and 50% of antipsychotic prescriptions to children. So it's like that we're in a we're in a broken system here. But what you can do is if you do get a diagnosis from a GP or a pediatrician, you can ask them to confirm it with a psychiatrist. And they should do that. So you can ask them to kind of like get a second opinion. Now I'm like you, I know that's really, really hard. And I would never have questioned. Any of my doctors, so I don't have a great solution for that.
4: Well, I will now. Yeah, yeah, now. Let's do. just say that. I mean, absolutely. After this conversation, and I'm sure our listeners will too. I mean, it's funny you hear, oh yes, get a second opinion, and and I immediately go, oh yeah, no, I know, I know, but life gets busy, and then you know, for whatever reason, you end up pushing that off. But then, uh, the repercussions of not doing that are so significant, and these statistics that you're telling us is, I, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss for words, because I just think about, you know, my daughter and how I go take her to the pediatrician. And if some diagnosis was given, how it could ultimately affect her life so significantly. So, okay, what keep going? What are some of the other questions that we need to do? Because I'm writing I know. this down. I'm like, I know. <laughs> if, if, if our listeners haven't pulled over at this point, they've pulled over now and they're taking notes. <laughs> And I know
3: it's, it seems so disheartening, but as you said, it's really empowering and f- being empowered can feel heavy. So I understand that it is like get having something behind you, you know, but if people need an excuse, they can say, Sarah Faye said, I have to get a second opinion. So just say that, just throw me under the bus. It's totally fine. But actually Alan Francis, who is, was actually one of the authors of the DSM and, and a very prominent psychiatrist has said this. He's the one who, quote unquote, told me, I don't know him, but I read it in his book, Saving Normal. And he said, always, always get a second opinion. So you can say Sarah Faye and Alan Francis told me I have to get a second opinion. But I think the other thing to think about, especially with children and teenagers and just knowing how vulnerable I was at that point was again, making sure that they understand that it's really a tool for physicians to use, not for us to use. And this is what amazed me in my research. My, my, Book is a memoir and it's very readable, but it's also got all the information I wish I'd known as I went through this over 30 years and that I want to give to people. But one thing I learned, which was pretty phenomenal, is that before the 1970s, patients didn't know their diagnoses at all. You just got treatment.
4: Oh, that seems really effective in a really wonderful
3: way. Right. I mean, diagnoses, they were invented for doctors to use to communicate with each other not for patients to use to think about themselves or talk about each other or say that person's a this or that person's of that. Or, I mean, it's really phenomenal when you think about it. And what listeners may want to know is right now, I mean, I have a diagnosis. So what happened to me and why I made this great shift, and I'll go to some other things that people can do in a second. But one thing that the reason why I broke out of the cycle that I was in is because I was in crisis. I was told that I was bipolar. I had been unable to live independently for five years. I was living with my mother and I was suicidal and in crisis. And I did not have a psychiatrist. My psychiatrist and I had had a falling out long story. It's in the book, but (laughs) you're going to have to grab that book to read it, (laughs) to figure it out. I was almost out of medication. I had no psychiatrist. And my sister just swept in. You mentioned the families. My family went through so much grief over this. And if I could give it them back those years, I would. They never gave up on me. I distanced myself. They didn't necessarily even always do anything. Families often ask me what they can do. And I tell them, just don't go away. Like, like you may have to distance their boundaries and that, but just don't ever, like, my my family just never gave up on me, I guess. So even if you have to go away, like not giving up on them. And that was was really huge for me. But my sister swept in. She found me a psychiatrist. I went to see him. We had that quick 30-minute consultation. And at the end, I waited for him to proclaim a new diagnosis or say, yes, you really are bipolar. It's true. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know what you have. And I was like, what? You know, I mean, you got to be kidding me. And the whole world like shifted for me. And I remember I left his office. We made another appointment. He refilled my meds and I left his office and it was bitterly cold in Chicago. And like the spindly bare trees, the tree branches looked like clearer. The street looked clearer. The sky looked crisper, but harsher. And I just thought, no one knows. Like What are these diagnoses that I've been putting so much stock in? And and why have I been identifying with these so much? And I don't know anything about them. And that's when I decided I'm going to learn everything about mental health diagnoses, which I did. And that's why I wrote Pathological. But I still see that same psychiatrist. He's, I respect him greatly. He's very transparent with me about the flaws in diagnosing and in the DSM and all of that. And what, he has a diagnosis for me and I never found out what it is. He's changed it twice. I do know that. And each time I've said, I don't want to know. And I, so I have a diagnosis and I don't want to know what it is. Cause I know I will, con- I'll start identifying again. And like, I had a panic attack this morning. <laughs> like, welcome to my world, you know? And I, I would have immediately, what would have happened was this is because of my anxiety disorder or my bipolar disorder or whatever would be on there. And then I would rush to my psychiatrist. I would change my meds. I would change the dose. I would look for another problem. I would try to find an explanation and it would just end up making things so much worse. And now what I'm forced to do without identifying with my diagnosis is I had to be like, oh, okay, welcome panic attack. Like this sucks in a huge way. It lasted like 40 minutes (laughs) and it was awful. It's a long time. And, And, you know, okay, my lips are going numb. I'm going to die. And I've seen this before and we're gonna just wait it out. Like, and then it was over and it was okay for it to be over. And I went for a walk and I was okay. Like it just, instead of it becoming part of the drama of me and my diagnosis, like that was, you know, like it's a a theatrical play or something, you know, and it just was, it is actually striking how quickly my symptoms really lessened when I stopped making like creating a story around them too. So, yeah. So, but going back to what other, what else people can do. One thing now that I do is, is pay attention to what is considered the symptoms. So my sadness, my lethargy, my anhedonia is what it's called, or like my disinterest in things that I normally love. Like, okay, what I pay attention to those, like what is actually going on? And then what's the context. Like, what's my life situation? And then I was diagnosed with bipolar, which is manic highs and depressive lows. I'm a really high energy person and I am really sensitive too. So when I would have what people considered manic highs, I was often just like so high energy and I couldn't control it. And it was euphoric and everything was blah, blah. blah. I get like that sometimes. And so part of it is my personality. Like, okay, oh, this is something I kind of do. Like I'm really, someone else, you know, Depression looks really different in someone who's low energy than someone who's high energy. So like I try to gauge more of the whole picture of what's happening. And this isn't to say that no psychiatrist does this. And Certainly, there are many psychologists and therapists and and, mental health professionals that do exactly this. My experience, though, I think is like a lot of people's, which is that we don't have a lot of access to care like that. And so what we're getting is a GP, a 15-minute visit, a diagnosis, some meds, see you later. And like, that's it. And so this is more about, okay, how can we shift that and at least let people know that isn't enough. It It just isn't.
4: And thank you for being so honest and sharing what happened this morning because it feels so real. It really does. It makes it feel so incredibly real. And, you know, it's one of those things where as we're having this discussion, it feels like the largest concern is when a young child or a teen is diagnosed because it they may not have the mental or the emotional capacity to deal with it in the way that you just explained. And like you said, it has been 30 years for you to come to terms with yourself and knowing how to handle yourself in those times. But the truth is we all just went through a pandemic and still are in a pandemic. So that sort of levels the playing field here because we all are going through... Some sort of, you know, I've heard the word depression just tossed around all the time. So I don't want to say lightly because it's not a light word, but people reference it and use it a lot. So for anyone who's listening that thinks, oh, I've had panic attacks and I've been depressed and I'm, you know, I... Do you, What can you say to them so that they can better understand themselves? How, did, how were you able to better understand yourself? I would love to hear you talk about self-acceptance, too, because I think that's such a huge factor of this.
3: Yeah. So I think, yeah, you've, again, you bring up so many great points. It's so great to be here. So one thing that you're bringing up and I should explain. So I'm writing the sequel to Pathological right now, and it is how I healed from mental illness. And now I was severely, I had serious mental illness. So I was suicidal for a long time. There's no question that I had mental illness. There's no question that something was very, very wrong with me when I was in eighth grade. And and I don't doubt that that was, you know an emotional sort of, you know, sort of psychiatric condition that was there. And maybe it was anorexia, maybe it was depression, maybe it was something else. That was more of an illustration of like what can happen as you identify and then you can become a diagnosis. So there's no question that that happened. And when I say that I've healed from it, we're often told that you can't, but you can, I have. And so I'm writing the book of how I did that and very concretely what has happened. It's been a lot of work but a lot of it was distancing myself from diagnosis as explanation and answer for everything to, okay, what is going on in my life? What's happening? Who? What kind of a person am I? What's my energy normally like? Like what is, you know, all the factors that are going on. So when I say I had a panic attack, that's just to say they don't go away. <laughs> if you are someone who's had panic attacks, whether or not you've cured you're cured of mental illness or a serious, you know, psychiatric disorder or you receive a mental health diagnosis and then we finally start allowing people to heal and you be you are healed it doesn't mean you don't experience what a lot of people experience being human beings so i have crippling anxiety sometimes i'm promoting a book i normally am like, at home <laughs> with my cat <laughs> like, like that's all i do i'm posting cat videos most <laughs> of the time normally i'm not out like talking about when i was suicidal like, right. that just doesn't right so it's not normal my normal day but the <laughs> but so it, you know of course that's happening i'm looking at my life circumstances and you bring up the pandemic and especially with young people they spent 2 years in their bedrooms if they weren't anxious and depressed it would be abnormal i mean that's a very reasonable response which doesn't mean you don't get treatment right that's step 1 Get help. Get treatment. Commit to the treatment. But step two is the diagnosis isn't forever. We have you know that doesn't mean you are a depressed person. And you bring up another great point, which is I think we we forget that we're using depression the emotion in the same way and in the same kind of sentence and meaning as depression the disorder, anxiety the emotion, anxiety the disorder. They're very different things. Depression and anxiety are actual you know integral parts of being a human being. And I didn't know this, but one thing that's been really instrumental for me is evolutionary psychiatry. And I've just I, I learned about it as I, you know, that's a lot, a lot more in my my new book. But it has its issues, all things do, and and downs drawbacks. But, but what I love about it is it talks about why depression and anxiety were actually beneficial and they're evolutionarily <laughs> advantageous. But anything that's evolutionarily advantageous is for our genes, not for us. They're not meant to make us happy. Like we weren't, we aren't our, we aren't actually designed. Our brains are solely designed to keep us alive. Like that's it. So we can, you know, procreate. <laughs> that's all we're here for. Happy doesn't come into it. That's something somebody wrote on a piece of paper. <laughs> like, you know, that like happy should is just, it's just like, stay alive, stay alive. And, and one of the most brilliant moments in my life and in my recovery was when I learned that oh, anxiety is really there to keep you alive. When you're on the, you know, if you were on the Savannah way back when and you were being hunted by lions, a very anxious person. I I laughed for the first time, I think in my life with myself or in a long time, I laughed with other people, but in 30 years, I don't think I laughed alone when I thought, oh, I was the person you wanted in your clan. Like I was the one, like I was the one on your team because I'm anxious. I'm seeing lions everywhere all the time. (laughs) So, but it was, I mean, when I learned that the other pivotal thing was that when you get a diagnosis, all the negatives are bad. And what I started to see through evolutionary psychiatry and just acceptance of myself as a human is that, oh, wait, this anxiety isn't bad. I don't have to get rid of it. I just have to know why it's there. And say, all right, so every morning, you know, I wake up and I take a piece of paper, like just a regular piece of paper. And I write down a list, like one through 20, all my thoughts, just one after another. I don't even think about it. They are so negative. (laughs) They may start a little positive, but eventually it's like, you're going to die. Everything's terrible and everything's wrong and no one is going to help you and all this. And so they're just very you know, negative aspects of my life. But it, it gives me a moment to look at it and say, okay, that's my brain doing its job, which is warning me of danger 20 times, alert, 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 alert. It's not all, it's not true. It's just my brain on alert. And I just crumple up the piece of paper and I throw it away and I go about my day. Like, okay, this is what we've got to work with. (laughs) This This is how we're set up. And so when the anxiety comes on, I used to just like brace against it and get so scared and oh my gosh I need a clonopin and I gotta I gotta uh, uh," you know and instead now what it's like oh this sucks and I know I'm a human and this is why you know this is why it happens it doesn't make it any more pleasant but so that that self-acceptance for me has been more of a understanding where Just how the body is designed, how we as humans are designed, as opposed to how I I wish I could feel all the time. They're not the same.
4: (laughs) Right. Hey, guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.
4: We're back. Thank you for all that. I mean, as you're talking about this so openly, you know, we've figured out that for you, not knowing your diagnosis is the most beneficial. We've also discussed how you said, you know, you know the signs and what to look for. So is there a world where we don't know our diagnosis, but the doctor can let us know, you know, almost the signs of what it would be or something similar to that so that we can be aware of hey, okay, this is happening. I know that this is something that could happen. And then it allows us to kind of, you know, handle these situations in the way that you said you did this morning.
3: It's, I mean, I wish that I had all the answers and I wish that I was a mental health professional, (laughs) that I was on the DSM committee and that I really knew all the, I know a lot more than any normal person should or average person should. But I, I, you know, at the same time, there's a lot that needs to be fixed. And psychiatry is well aware of that in the diagnostic system and how we interact with big pharma and how medications are distributed and how medications influence the creation of diagnoses and the the amount of diagnoses that are given, all of that. And and I feel like the public doesn't know about that, but it is on the table. To its credit, psychiatry isn't hiding any of this. It's not sinister. Big pharma can be a wee sinister. <laughs> There's no question. Just but, a wee. <laughs> but my, my, my medication has been incredibly helpful to me. And pill shaming, which is kind of another side of what's going on now, which is like somehow you're ignoble if you take a medication. It's absolutely not true. We all need to find relief where we can, where, we, where it's helpful. I mean, that's just the situation we're in. So I don't know that we're in a position right now not to use everything at our disposal is kind of what I'm saying. So for me, I I have a lot of knowledge and I say in my book, it's a luxury to refuse a diagnosis. And it is, I mean, for me, it's not, there are situations where identifying with a diagnosis is very helpful and has been for people. I have friends for whom getting a depression diagnosis or diagnosis of major depressive disorder was just such a lifeline for them. It it calmed them down. It was like, okay, this is a reason for what's going on with me. And that's a very valid, valid use of a diagnosis, but it's that language. We're using diagnoses, right? Like they're, they're, they're not quite like, you know, they're not a cancer diagnosis, so they're not quite solid enough for us to put everything blindly into them. But we can say, and adults certainly have this ability, Okay, sure, there's, you know, discrepancies and this and that, but I've gone to a mental health professional I trust. I've spoken with them about this diagnosis. It feels right. It resonates. I can see where they're coming to this conclusion. The treatment's working. We're good. Like, great. That's beautiful. And that's where we all want to get, which is the treatment is working and we're good. And now some, you know, mental health diagnoses have not, with a couple of exceptions, been proven to be chronic. And I think that's really important. At the same time, a very having a mental health condition, and I love this metaphor, is like someone said to me, it's like breaking a bone. And when you break a bone, when the bone heals, the point at which the healing occurs becomes the strongest part of the bone, which is like amazing. But at the same time, bones heal differently. So some bones don't set right. Some bones, you'll have chronic pain for the rest of your life some bones, you know, from what I understand, don't heal fully. So that's to say that not all, even though no diagnosis has been proven to be chronic, some people may suffer with major depressive disorder or what we call that and those symptoms for their lives that may happen. But I think what we're being denied right now is any chance of healing because we're actually being told that they're lifelong, which there's no evidence of that.
4: And, you know, I think it's really important for us to address the fact that this is your experience. What we're talking about right now is your experience. So you're right. Anyone else who has been through something different or Sarah's just here to share what worked for her about her book and how... Well, she's now able to handle it. And just, I just want to, because we have a lot of younger listeners on the podcast too, and people who are in, you know, really pivotal times in their life that are stressful. And, you know, I'm sure the word anxiety is something that's entered their mind a ton. So I just want you guys to know that this is Sarah's story. Your story is different. My story is different. We each have a different story. And on that note, I really do want to make sure that we discuss how this affects the families because you know we touched on that a little bit and i know you had said that it, it you had a family where you you were able to live with your mom when you needed to and your sister stepped in and she was able to call and find a psychiatrist for you which is incredible not all of us have that and so i'm wondering if you can give some advice to anyone listening who May not have that at their disposal, or maybe they do have that at their disposal, but they're resisting it. I mean, everyone's story is different. It's just a really difficult time, no matter what. Yeah,
3: and and just so everyone, you know, so people know, I did. I spent most of my life very much alone. I isolated. I distanced myself from my family. So that's what I meant about them not giving up. I mean, I definitely pushed them away hugely, and so I understand that loneliness and that feeling feeling as if you are completely on your own. And I was for a lot of it. But I think the other thing that's really important, and I acknowledge this so much, Thomas Insel. I mentioned him, but he's former head of the National Institute for Mental Health. And he has a new book called Healing, The Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health, in which he talks about mental illness not being chronic and what we need for recovery. And others have talked about this too, but it goes to what you're saying. He says, you know, and others have said, we need three Ps, like the letter P. And they are people, place, and purpose. And I was so fortunate that I had all three. And so I had my family. I had a place to, to convalesce when I was really in crisis, which was my mother's. And I had a purpose, which has always been writing and teaching for me. So those to have those three things, as I said, is such a luxury and such a gift to have if you, you know, at the at the same time, I live now next door to a transition home for people with serious mental illness. And so I see them all the time. But I, I think, how can you ever be expected to recover with no home? Like that just, I, I can't imagine what that must be like. So to, to understand that. And the people with especially serious mental illness or what's called SMI, which is typically schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and depression with suicidality, those people are the ones really ending up on the streets and in jails who really have no place. So th- that's something to just keep in mind as we talk about this, that the most severe cases, we're, we're really failing them right now. But if you, you know, I, I don't think it has to be a family member necessarily. It can be a therapist. It can be, you know, to have a, pe- people can be anything. And I think one thing that, you know, that's that's coming up too is that, and you bring this up, everyone will do it differently. And I think books like mine and experiences like mine are just meant for, oh, that's an interesting idea. Maybe that could work for me. Maybe this could work for me. Maybe not. But ultimately, you know, each person does have to find their own way. I think we're becoming far more alert to people in need and how to get people resources. So I can say this, that for young people, I teach at a university, so I've now come full circle. And I I have students who come to me, you know, not just with one diagnosis, but three or four at a time. And they're very confused and they very much identify with having it. They think it's holding them back in some way and, and it's, it's a part of their struggle. And that's very, very real. So just to know that, you know, there are services on campuses for mental health services that can be very, very useful. I think also just noting that online and on social media probably isn't the best place to get information. And so that would be the the main thing is like check where you're getting your information.
4: And unfortunately, that's the most readily available information, <laughs> which is really hard sometimes and disheartening. You know, we've talked a lot about this conversation of mental health is stagnant. There's a lot that isn't being discussed that isn't out there for the public, or maybe it is out there. We just have to seek it. It's not in our face all the time. So how can we continue to progress it and have these conversations and maybe even bring these conversations up with family and friends so that everyone's aware of it?
3: I think the main I mean, what I'd love to see is more and more people saying, oh, okay, you know, I have this I got this diagnosis. This person just gave it to me. Now, how can I heal? Would you ever get a diagnosis of a broken bone and then just like walk out of the office with gas? Such such a good analogy. No, of course not. (laughs) But we don't even talk about healing, like ever. And, and, And so there's an assumption there. And I think, you know, when we talk about getting services to those in need, one thing I've been just playing around with, and again, I haven't done any studies and I haven't found any research studies on this, but if we have a, a glutted mental health system of people who enter and are never told they can leave, how could we possibly be expected to get services to those who need, right? They're going to have problems. Like if we're just having people enter the mental health system and never leave, like eventually, I mean, I know that in physical medicine, we're always in the me- in the health system, but but I do think that there's, you know, definitely looking at healing and moving the conversation to that. How do we heal? Not just remission, not just in recovery. But how
4: do we heal? Mm -hmm. That's so I'm just so grateful that you wrote this and that it's out there for people and that you shared your story because it's not an easy story to share. And for those listening, you guys, I highly recommend Sarah Faye's book Pathological, The True Story of Six Misdiagnosis. And I I have one last question to ask you because I love asking our guests this, but if you were able to go back in time and see young Sarah in eighth grade after that high school trip, what would you say to her when you first got your first misdiagnosis, what would you say to her? I would just say, you're not broken. You're not broken.
3: Like That was something I kept thinking of myself as permanently broken regardless of which diagnosis it was, it was, it didn't matter. Cause I was obviously there was something really wrong with me and and there was, I needed treatment. I needed help. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I would definitely say that not to, you know, assume this permanent brokenness. And then the other is not to believe what you read on the internet.
4: <laughs> there you go, guys. We have that discussion. <laughs> That's all just like time. a very
3: basic one.
4: <laughs> totally. No, I, so mm-hmm. i I hear you. We're taking it in. Sometimes it's harder to do than <laughs> than it seems. But Sarah, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. And where can our listeners find you on social media? And because uh, I know we all want to be a part of this conversation and make sure that it's still out there. I love hearing from people. So please, you can find me,
3: Sarah Fay uh, at Sarah Fe Author on all social media. So it's S-A-R-A-H-F-A-Y Author on all social media. And then you can find me at sarahfay.org.
4: Yes. Perfect. I love it. And we are so excited for your sequel too, yes. because that is the second step to heal. So yes. thank you for coming today and sharing your story. We're really we're really honored. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I so appreciate it. You know, one thing I loved so much about Sarah, not only is she just <laughs> lovely to talk to, but she is so honest and real and willing to go there so much to the point where she was like, hey, this is what happened this morning before I hopped on the mic with you. And I really respect and appreciate her for doing that because it makes it seem so real. Thank you, Sarah, if you're listening to this, for coming on so we can have a conversation like this during Mental Health Awareness Month. We talked about the pandemic and how we've all been through a lot these past few years. And if you get anything from this episode, I want Sarah's words to resonate with you that we were all locked in our rooms for two years. And if we didn't feel depressed or anxious or anything of that sort, just know we're all in this together. And we're so grateful that you are a part of our Directionally Challenged family and that you listen to this episode. We have another great one coming for you next week. Until then, take care. Directionally Challenged is a production of Pineapple Productions. Produced by Melissa D. Mons. Edited by Diane King. Post-production sound by Chris Henry. Music by Joe King. And advertising partnership with Acast.